What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are two guys just trying to make sense of our friend Paul's dreams. I'm Matt Johnson, and I run up and hug every single stranger I see, just like Paul Atreides. And I'm Austin Terry, and I, too, hope to one day harness desert power, or maybe even dessert power. Ooh, I love that. Depends on the amount of S's. On today's show, of course, we're revisiting Dune Part 1 to get fully prepared for Dune Part 2 in a few weeks. We did a review of this way back in 2021, which sounds crazy to say. Feels like this like was a year ago, but no, I guess I, I guess three, three years, years flew by. <laughs> uh, but yes, we reviewed it when it came out. But with something as dense as this, we were kind of in need of a refresh. So with that, I say let's go ahead and just get right into the ongoings of House Atreides and their misadventures on Arrakis based on the seminal 1965 novel from Frank Herbert, of course. Um, I, for one, remember being... I guess surprisingly lukewarm on this movie upon first watching it and then liking it a lot more the second time I watched with subtitles. I think that was definitely a big help. Uh, but what about you, Austin? Kind of remind everyone of your just general thoughts on Dune Part 1. And did you kind of just get anything general new out of it on this rewatch? Yeah, I uh, I actually went back and listened to our original episode on Dune Part 1. And you're right, you were lukewarm. Uh, and then, of course, with subtitles, you kind of got a little higher on the movie. Mm-hmm. I was definitely the highest uh, of the three of us uh, watching it for the first time. And I think on a rewatch, I like it even more. There was so much more I caught. The story, I think, flows so much better. Subtitles are a must, I feel like, for watching this first movie. Um, I remember we were kind of feeling like, Okay, if if a sequel doesn't happen, this movie is going to feel hollow because at the time Warner Bros. had not greenlit Dune Part 2. But now watching this movie, knowing Dune Part 2 is just a few weeks away, I can't wait. Uh, This is like, I think it's shaping up to be a sci-fi masterpiece. And the early reviews from Dune Part 2 are great, so I, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. I think it it is really exciting to actually have a movie that gets better the more you watch it. I feel like that doesn't really happen (laughs) these days. It feels like it's always the opposite trajectory, even with something that you like. I feel like the more you watch it, it can start to, you know, you kind of catch some of like the nitpicky things and they start to add up and you go, yeah, it's still great, but, you know, just not quite as good. Whereas, yeah, like like we said, I was lukewarm on the first watch. And I think that was also maybe due to expectations to a degree, because I I think when you look at, you know, Denis Villeneuve's like pretty fucking stellar filmography. I think when this one came out, it was, he had taken a few years off. Um, so it was like, oh, he's back. And then I saw this and I was like, this is really great. But, you know, it's just maybe compared to some of his other things, I was a little bit uh, let down, especially as someone that didn't really have, I don't know, really any knowledge of Dune in general going into it. But yeah, then with the subtitles and just watching it again, I was able to kind of put some of those expectations aside and I liked it a lot more. And I have not seen it since it came out um, and doing those kind of two uh, pretty close back-to-back rewatches. Uh, But this time I liked it even more. And I think with like more time away from it, kind of getting those expectations I had going in out of my head and not like comparing it to some of his other work and just, I don't know, just kind of getting absorbed in this crazy dense world. um, I think you're right. It's like once you kind of get past a lot of the stuff, And I don't know, I guess the more familiar you become with it, the more easy it is to see some of those details. And the details, I think, are the kind of the coolest thing about this movie, Um, like just like the random small things. So on this third watch, I liked it the most I have so far. And I'm with you. You know, I now I can't wait for Dune Part Two, which is I've I've gone on a weird little I've had a weird relationship with this movie, but I'm very excited. But, you know, I I am nervous that there won't be subtitles, (laughs) I guess. So I'll just have to mentally prepare for that. But I'm very excited. Maybe we can uh, request them from the projection manager in the theater. Maybe. Well, at least I know character names and like locations yeah, now. So sure. I think that's, like, that's a big that's a big thing. And alliances. Like it was a little tough the first time to catch who's all allied with who. 
Um, and then the other thing, this was actually a negative for us the first time we watched it and reviewed it. But the other thing I became more impressed with was how, I guess, dense the world building is with just like random throwaway lines. Like Matt, the one that stood out to you the first time we watched it is with the Harkonnen character calling out that him and Atreides are cousins, like out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Like that sort of yeah. stuff the first time was like, that's a little jarring. But this time I was like, okay, I got that info. It's what I needed to know. We can kind of get back into the story. And then I also yeah. remembered this being like, for whatever reason in my head, when we agreed to do this, I was like, oh, that's a three and a half hour movie. It's going to take forever to watch. Then you watch it, it's two and a half hours. Like it's insane how much they were mm-hmm. able to get in there in such a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Before we actually get into the nitty gritty of it, I, I still think the movie is like far from perfect, but it's still perfect. I don't know if that may- it's still great. I still <laughs> love it. I, and I love it even more and more. But there are things like objectively about it that I think people kind of, I don't know, because this movie is so beloved, especially from like Dune hardcore people. Like, I think maybe they uh, look past some things. And that, that's such a great example, because I did laugh again on this time whenever he just out of nowhere calls him cousin. I mean, it is bad. Like, that's not good. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But to your point, I think it also helps on rewatches, because now that I knew that on the two times I've watched it since that original viewing, it kind of, I guess, gives some more interesting stuff to the earlier scenes before you get there. Because like, so they're cousins. So like, so you kind of watch those scenes knowing that. And it does make some of the things a bit more interesting. But just just to throw it out there, I do think there are just objectively weird kind of lines of dialogue like that. Some transitions are very odd, but I, I kind of like them for that reason, too, because it's like this hyper realistic take on this sci fi thing. But then there are just really like cheesy goofy moments like that like i mean come on what about like the final line from zendaya she just goes this is only the beginning and then like paul just kind of like weirdly smiles i'm like we just went from like the most grounded thing to the cheesiest hollywood (laughs) corny shit ever and i i fucking love it i was laughing too just thinking about like the timeline of the events of this film it's like day zero we're going to arrakis day one we land on Arrakis. Day two, our entire family gets wiped our out on Arrakis. Our family's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they weren't there very long. The Emperor certainly did not wait too long to <laughs> employ his plan, which I also was kind of laughing to myself on this viewing specifically. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. We're not going to do like a spoiler warning. I mean, this is a three-year-old movie. If for some reason you're just tuning into this and maybe you've been kind of excited about Dune Part 2 and you haven't gotten around to this, it's definitely worth it just to get absorbed into this world. So go watch it if you haven't. Uh, but yeah, the rest of this, we're just going to be talking not only spoilers, but just random, random, super detailed things. So this is not something that you should listen to if you haven't watched the movie yet. So go do that and then come on back if you haven't. If you're like most people and you've already seen Dune, then stick around. Let's have a good time. Yeah. And you're, if you're curious of our original thoughts uh, on Dune Part 1, we'll put a link in the comments of this episode to that original episode, too. For sure. For sure. All right. Let's do it. All right, everybody, welcome to the core of our conversation on Dune Part 1. I guess, as always, Austin, let's do some quick cast and crew talk before we kind of dive into the details. All right, so Dune Part 1 is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who you, of course, may know from Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049. It's also written by John Spates, Eric Roth, and Villeneuve as well. Uh, It's scored by the one and only Hans Zimmer and based on the book Dune by Frank Herbert. And then you have an A-list all-star cast to go along with that. Uh, you have Timothy Chalamet, of course, as Paul Atreides, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica, Oscar Isaac in his full bearded glory as Duke Leto Atreides, Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck, Stellan Skarsgård as Baron Harkonnen, Dave Bautista as Glosso Rabin, 
Zendaya is Chani, Sharon Duncan Brewster is Dr. Kynes, and yeah, of course, you got your man, my man, Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho, one of the few times he chose to act, and Javier <laughs> Bardem as Stilgar. So again, it would be fun to go back and listen to our episode, Austin, since you already did, maybe you'd remember uh, who our call-outs were, but is there anybody specifically that you, like, still feel like calling out after watching this movie a few times? Yeah, the original call-outs from all of us were uh, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, uh, you called out the cinematography, Matt, and then you were blown away at how well Javier Bardem can inhabit a role in such little screen time. Um, oh, I know. I gotta say, for me this time, I came away thoroughly impressed with Paul Atreides. Timothy Chalamet is great yeah. in this role, and it is so clear, because you always hear how Dune is the inspiration for kind of all our modern sci-fi. It is so clear that Paul Atreides is Luke Skywalker. Like, that's who that character was based off of. And while I was watching this, I was kind of in my mind, like, comparing this movie to A New Hope. And Paul Atreides, as our titular, like, the person who doesn't want to be the leader, but has to be stepping into that and kind of inhabiting a role of a, of a very powerful house and then also interacting with kind of the commoners, like... I loved everything about Paul in this movie. I like how he still has those kind of boyish characteristics. And then he does like kind of flip a switch when he needs to. And it can be that inspirational person. And I'm so pumped to see him in Dune Part 2 stepping more into like the Duke of House Atreides role. Uh, and Timothy Chalamet, I think, is just perfect casting for this role. The thing that, um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, he really is quite fantastic in the movie. Um, he's always great. But yeah, in this, I'm kind of with you. Whenever I first watched it, it wasn't that I was unimpressed by Paul Atreides and Timothy Chalamet's performance. It was just like, I was like, yeah, it's good. Of course it's good. He's always good. But here, uh, especially after watching a few times, you're right. It does stand out even more. And the thing that I'm curious to talk with you more about is like, it is comical if you look at kind of just the description of Paul on paper, meaning like he's he's the future. I'm like, it's not even the future. He is the heir to House Atreides, right? He is the most feared person by House Harkonnen. He is this weird, I guess, I guess you could all, I mean, he's just the general chosen one on his mother's side with the Bene Gesserit. He's also going to be, I guess, the future chosen one of the Fremen. It's like, it's comical. It's just like Paul has to be like the number one thing in like every category. But this movie does such a good job of like making you not only not really think about it, but they make it cool. Like the chosen one archetype really can be tropey and dumb yeah i feel like most of the time and here it's just like kind of awesome and i think it also helps that he doesn't really want it like you said um well the other yeah, great character the other thing too is paul when we first meet him has only known that he's the heir to house atreides we're watching him in real time find out everything behind the scenes that his mother and the benny jesserits have been setting up that he is the messiah and telling all these people that so he is not only already living with being the heir to this great house but then also shouldering oh all these people think i'm the messiah I don't even know if I'm the Messiah, but having to kind of inhabit that role, too, especially as his house starts getting decimated. Yeah. I mean, of course, shout out to everybody behind the camera, all that. I mean, the whole team built with Villeneuve leading it. I mean, it's a marvel. I mean, I know the movie costs a lot of money to make. You know, it's like one hundred and sixty five million dollars or something, but it still looks like it cost like five hundred million dollars to make. I mean, the visual effects department as well, knocking out of the park. Uh, and then, yeah, with the coming with the cast, I'm not going to really call it anybody specific. I just. The more I watch it, it becomes more and more obvious that, like, besides, I don't know, maybe you could say definitely Paul, obviously, is the main character. And then maybe Rebecca Ferguson, like definitely a lot of screen time. But everybody else, all of this talent, really, they probably each what have like four scenes, maybe. Yeah. Like Jason Momoa kind of pops in. Everybody talks about his performance in this movie. He's really barely in it. 
Um, Javier Bardem is in like two scenes, but like they're so memorable. So everybody brought their A game to such like not small characters, but just kind of knowing that they probably wouldn't have a ton of screen time. And I think kind of the commitment by everybody really stands out in this movie. Yeah, Josh Brolin, especially like you see him walk into a crowd of Harkonnen soldiers and then he's just gone the rest of the movie. And then, of course, the trailers for Dune Part 2 reveal he's still alive. But yeah, another one of those kind of funny things, because like when you watch the movie for the first time, you would have no like you wouldn't assume he was dead or that you wouldn't see him again for the rest of the movie. So that's another kind of the more you watch it, just like with me, everybody. And then he kind of like looks back and smiles and just runs into like seemingly death. And then the trailer comes out. It's like, no, he's alive. It's like, oh. Okay. The other thing, too, I didn't catch, uh, speaking of Josh Brolin and Jason Momoa's characters, is whenever the Harkonnens are like going through their allyship with the Sardaukar, the elite imperial forces, they're calling out like all of House Atreides is trained by Gurney Hollick and Duncan Idaho. So those two characters are, I guess, renowned fighters. So they like mm-hmm. hold presence on the battlefield. I didn't catch that originally in the first in the first viewing of this movie. Yeah. And I kind of like this. I think let's just continue the conversation. Like, we're, Everybody, if you're listening to this, we are officially in the we're in our roundtable discussion, freeform conversation, whatever the fuck you want to call it. We're into it because like I already have things I want to say that they're kind of funny. And like people are going to say, oh, those are nitpicks. They're not really. I just things I want to point out. So also like, what is the difference between Gurney and Duncan in terms of their role? <laughs> like, is, I, I, Duncan I took is it just this like, way. I took it this way. I <laughs> yeah. took it as. Gurney is kind of the general and Duncan is like a special forces soldier. Right. Okay. That's kind of what I got on this viewing. I, I do think it's funny because it's like, I got, Gurney's like, I'm, I'm taking over for Duncan today. I'm going to train you. It's like, okay. And like, and then, but then later you're like, well, well, so what's Gurney doing when Duncan is there? <laughs> so, I just think it's funny, but I'm, I'm really excited for um part two. Cause I, I don't know. I mean, based on the trailer, I know we're getting a lot more characters, but I feel like we're probably going to get more. Josh Brolin and I would like to see more of this character um and it's also I think just exciting because like like we kind of joked uh once they get to Arrakis they have like a couple days of like you know fun in the sun and then they all die so I think it's going to be cool to have a character actually come back that's connected to House Atreides so I'm curious how that relationship might uh be expanded upon but yeah very excited for more Gurney yeah it looks like Gurney is falling into the mentor role from the trailers because he's advising Paul from the limited things we see in the trailer but he's saying like they think you're the messiah use that like what's so bad about that so I'm, I'm i'm super excited to see that too i'm glad he's back too i love josh brolin yeah yeah absolutely absolutely let's move on to something a little bit more broad than specific characters i know when we last talked about this film in 2021 we kind of all agreed that the performances the visuals and the world building were all solid and a plus from denevald no but then at the time, we were watching this unsure of what Warner Bros. is going to do. Warner Bros. is kind of waiting to see the reception. There was always that kind of big up in the airness of Dune Part 2 was going to get greenlit or not. So now having watched this, with the knowledge that Dune Part 2 is two weeks away, did that change your perception of the first movie? Or, or how do you feel on this kind of new rewatch with that context of Dune Part 2 being right around the corner? I guess, I guess you're right. I guess we were in a, in a weird limbo state and sounds like the entire team was when it came to you know, are we going to get a sequel to this or not? And like, we kind of commented on that. Well, if we don't, it's going to be hollow. But I was kind of thinking about it today. It's like, is this really that different from how movies are made, at least like pre cinematic universes and stuff? Like, it was pretty common to make a movie and be like, if this does well, then we'll make another one. Yeah. And like, we didn't we didn't get mad when those types of movies had cliffhangers. Like, 
we were like, yeah, I, oh, that's a cool cliffhanger. I hope it makes money and does well so we can get another. And sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And that's just kind of how it works. But I don't know. I guess maybe with like the advent of Marvel and like other other people making these universes where it's like when one movie is coming out, you already you're guaranteed three more and 12 TV shows. So there's less, I guess, not anticipation, but curiosity if you'll actually get something because we know. I think also, too, at the time, there was kind of the general public apathy for Warner Bros for the way they've yeah. been handling franchises. I think the Batgirl movie had just been like shelved forever at that time. Mm. So I think like from a public perspective, the fact that Warner Bros was doing this to another crew of a film that people were liking, we had just come off all the Snyderverse stuff too. Like I think people just had kind of had it with Warner Bros. And I think it was also it's one of those things where it's like we all knew it was really high quality, whether or not you love the content, that's up to you to decide. But I mean, it's a really high quality thing. So the idea that something objectively good um, and ambitious and exciting, like wouldn't get a sequel based on money, of course, also at the height of the pandemic. So I think there was this thing. It's like they're putting this out in theaters and they, they are also doing the HBO Max, like same day streaming thing or whatever you want to call it. But because of that, I think there was a concern like, oh, no, now that means this thing's not going to make that much money. So like Warner Brothers will use that as an excuse to be like, well, we I just didn't do what it needed to to do. So we can't make a sequel. It's like, but it's like COVID and you're also putting it on HBO. So. I think there was more like a worry because we just knew it was going to be good and wanted more. So it was kind of a good problem to have. But you're right. Now kind of like reframing it as like we know Dune Part 2 is coming. It's very exciting. Um, and I tried to kind of re- even actually while watching the movie, especially towards the ending, I tried to remove, you know, the idea of Dune Part 2. I wanted to put myself back in the perspective of first watching it and like kind of like to your point, like, does this feel exciting or like or is it hollow by the end? And I actually kind of found on this rewatch that even the ending and kind of that some of those things I didn't really bother me. And I don't think it's because I know Dune Part 2 is right around the corner. I think even if I didn't know that, like, or it was still like even further off or something, like, I feel like this ending's pretty solid. And I know at the time I was like, eh, kind of a weak ending, kind of like a anticlimactic or like wet fart at the end or something. <laughs> but but here I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like on this rewatch, I'm liking even some of the things that I was really kind of anti whenever I was first watching it. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably the best thing I can say about the rewatch. It's like, even if I didn't know the sequel was coming, I still feel like I liked a lot of those ending elements and kind of set up stuff a lot more. Yeah, I think for me, that the thing that stands out versus the first time I watched it is I caught a lot more of the politics and the house relationships and kind of the broader galactic scale this time around than I did the first one. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, man, I really like that, but it's this giant sci-fi movie that takes place on one planet. So the galactic scale I thought was missing, but this time I think I noticed it more just with the houses and the emperor and all the side conversations. The only thing that still stands out as a little underwhelming is the whole movie. They're teasing the relationship between Timothy Chalamet and Daya. And then Zendaya comes on in the last five minutes of the movie. So if we hadn't gotten a sequel, I think that aspect would have still stayed pretty disappointing. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, we mentioned, you know, hoping for more, you know, Josh Brolin as Gurney in the sequel because, you know, it's like, oh, cool and exciting character connected to House of Trades. That'll be fun to see. It's also, I think, equally exciting to, I guess, I don't know. I, I've, I've definitely seen at least one trailer for Dune Part 2, and I remember the Josh Brolin stuff you mentioned, but I feel like maybe somehow I've like weirdly subconsciously like stayed away from the trailers for it, which I'm excited about. Um but yeah, I mean, what's the relationship going to be like with Zendaya? Because you have to, it's going to be like kind of going from a nothing character that they just tease, not in a bad way, but just really a character that only has characterization in the last five minutes, like you said. And like just going to, I assume, being like the co-lead of the movie, that's going to be quite a leap. I'm curious what the relationship even will be. 
And it sounds like, I mean, this movie kind of plays with like, it could be, you know, like the love interest that he sees sometimes in his dreams or like the one time where she stabs him. It's like, I have no fucking clue what, what it's going to be, but I'm excited for that too. Um, I mean, of course, the other big one, somebody that is um, constantly mentioned, mentioned even more than I realized or remembered on this rewatch, but the emperor definitely has kind of the the same layout or feel as the emperor in Star Wars, where it's like a character that is mentioned, you know, a decent amount of times. We know that like, hey, this Darth Vader guy may be the scary main villain, but even he has a boss and that's kind of scary, too. Uh, then, of course, the emperor comes on in the third one. Um, the emperor, that's also something I'm very excited about because... In terms of, again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I do have questions on why the Harkonnens were actually even taken off Arrakis just to be replaced um, by Atreides and then killed immediately. They do have like a really interesting line about like, well, the emperor is a jealous man and Leto Atreides is, you know, currying favor with everybody. So like, is it just that? I'm curious. So I'm excited to get more emperor stuff. And, and of course, I mean, come on, the fact that it's Christopher Walken. I mean, we're excited. We're excited. <laughs> it's perfect casting. And I actually, I caught a bit more of the Emperor's motivations this time around. I didn't even remember how much of the Atreides kind of wipeout was orchestrated by the Emperor. From everything I caught on this rewatch, the Emperor doesn't like that House Atreides has be, kind of become who the other houses and leadership look to for guidance. And so he mm. pulls off the Harkonnens and then sends Atreides into Arrakis because Arrakis has no satellites on it. So whatever happens there, it's kind of just, it's unknown to the universe. The Emperor is still siding with the Harkonnens. He just needs it to look like Atreides, like something fatal happened to them on the planet. Yeah, I like like that because now you're making me think about how they could handle it in the sequel when I previously wasn't really thinking about that yet. But yeah, I mean, you're right. They definitely mentioned the satellites. So that has to be the reason why it happened on Arrakis, like you said, for kind of unknown reasons. But that does make me think at the same time. For House Atreides, especially when the head of the house, like we said, the reason that he did this in the first place was because, you know, everybody loves him. And it's like he's jealous and that could lead to maybe, I don't know, some somehow House Atreides surpasses even the emperor in terms of power, influence, whatever you want to call it. But like, even if they're on Arrakis, like, don't you feel like the emperor kind of did, I don't even know what to call it, like scorched earth? Because it's like they all died. So it's like, <laughs> does he just assume that whenever people hear that, you know, Leto Atreides died and like everybody died they're like they're not gonna ask questions <laughs> i get the satellite was a good idea but you know for someone as beloved you think there might be questions but yeah i don't know so i'm curious like once we actually see the emperor on screen I- i'd love to hear him like actually kind of talk through some of that or like kind of i don't know like um put like an even firmer button on some of the motivation stuff and like kind of how the death of leto atreides might impact like the universe at large obviously it won't end up mattering because paul is alive but very curious what kind of that news, how it would spread through the galaxy and what uh, questions people might be asking. Yeah, the other thing I kind of, I guess, realized more of on this rewatch was just how important Spice is. I guess on the first rewatch, I just more saw it as like a commodity that was really valuable, so they traded it. Um, but after some further reading, I learned that in the Dune series, there is a big like apathy for technology. So like AI and computers isn't something humanity really li- relies on. There's a big like, trying to develop the human brain and with spice allowing humanity to travel through uh like galactic travel like see that that's what makes spice so valuable and i didn't catch that on the first rewatch at all or on the first viewing at all yeah and i think you could potentially look at that as a negative i always remember that line for some reason in the opening like whenever zendaya is doing um the narration i think that's when they mention like oh yeah and like you know professional like 
navigators or pilots or whatever use the spice to actually be able to do their job. They have to get like high out of their mind to be like, holy shit, <laughs> to actually to do that. But they, I guess what I mean is like they don't really talk about that ever again. There's no the handholding so, in this movie at all. Right, right. Which is fine. But yeah, to your point, like once they get on Arrakis, Spice seems mostly just very connected to the Fremen side of things. And you can easily forget that like, oh, wait, the actual the galaxy at large uses it. And then it makes it kind of clicks in your head and go, oh, well, duh, that's why like the whole thing is like harvesting Spice. It's actually going somewhere. I also thought it was cool on this rewatch that like <laughs> the Harkonnens like do something that you wonder why more villains like don't do in media uh, or just stories like this is like once they realized, oh, the Emperor's pulling us out. And I guess they didn't. They didn't know at the time why they were leaving. They basically just sabotaged all of the harvesting equipment. <laughs> so it's like, we don't give a fuck who comes here next, whoever it's going to be. We're going to make sure they have the worst time and they look bad and like in terms of like production compared to us. I was like, oh, um, yeah, it actually makes a lot of sense on the villain side of things. The other thing that stood out to me more on this rewatch is how integral the Fremen are to kind of all the technology they're using once they get to Arrakis. Like they talk about the suits and the harvesting and just how ingenious these people are. I'm really excited to see that explored more uh, whenever kind of Paul joins their rebellion against the Harkonnens in the, in part two. Yeah, me too. I don't know why that like, I don't know why that like jumped out like a lot to me this time as well. I feel like, why did I forget that? Or like, why didn't that stick out? So I think that was just a me problem, but I'm with you. It was, it was really cool to see like the emphasis on the fact that, you know, Arrakis is this, like hellhole, as Leto calls it. Um, but like having like these these people found a way to make this like inhabitable place like habitable, I think is just really it's just really cool. It's just, and it's fun to watch. And it's fun to watch what they created to your point. And I love the scene where it's like, yeah, the Harkonnens like estimated there was like fifty thousand or it was like five hundred thousand or yeah, whatever it was. was cool. But then like the realization that there's millions and millions, like is a nice way to kind of hit home on that and their innovation. And I'm just excited to see like one of these sieges. I'm excited to see like their homes and like kind of what that actually looks like. So I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff with the Fremen and kind of how they make this world work in a, in, in the sequel. And I love that they kind of end with the shot that they were kind of teasing a couple times throughout the movie whenever they ride the sandworms. Like, I mean, that's also cool as shit. So I'm, I'm excited to see that as well. Yeah, the trailer teases like three sandworms coming into battle. So the sandworm design is so cool. And like, it sounds so goofy if you just hadn't seen the movie, but like, oh, there's this giant sandworm that everyone's scared of. But it's so intimidating on like the way it's portrayed with Devil Knows cinematography. Uh, like just seeing it swallow one of those giant harvesters, like it's a great way to show you scale of the beast. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the scene when it kind of like, fully rises out of the ground to encounter oh, yeah. Paul was crazy too. The sandworm tease is just like so perfectly paced throughout the movie because it starts off as like that those cool like um like hollow books that Paul has where he's like learning about Arrakis in the world and like it kind of starts there. And then yeah with like the harvester and then when um Kynes dies, it's just like the really cool element of like the sand just kind of opens up a little bit and you see some of the I don't know what you would call it, not the hairs, teeth. but like whatever, whatever, like, yeah, like the teeth that like line their mouth, you just kind of see it poke out a little bit and then culminating in like the, the big scene from the first trailer of like the first movie, whenever it just fully rises out. And I and the fact that it like doesn't move at all is just so cool. It's like it's so the in intimidation factor of the sandworms is so, so well done. And like the idea that in a sequel, we could be using these like as weapons like of war <laughs> is pretty <laughs> sick. <laughs> so it's going to be good. I'm excited. Speaking of the sequel, this one does spend all its time on one planet, 
Will you be disappointed if we stay on Arrakis for the whole movie in part two? Not really. I guess I didn't I didn't think about that too much, but I guess that, I don't know what that's a tribute to. I guess everybody when it came to the behind the scenes team um, making a very barren planet, just very, I don't know, like dynamic and interesting to look at and kind of like it feels interesting to be on like as a viewer watching the movie. So I guess I wouldn't really be that mad if we stayed there the whole time. That said, I think it's probably going to be how this movie handles it, where it like you know, quickly cuts away to like a different planet. They throw the name on the screen. Uh, they tell like they tell you the name of the planet and then they tell you kind of briefly what it is like Caladan, home of House Atreides, that kind of thing. I think we're going to get more because, I mean, by nature of having the emperor, you'd have to imagine there's going to be more of uh, that planet that we saw briefly uh, whenever the Sardaukar are uh, recruited to the cause. But yeah, my guess is like we're not going to spend too much time on other planets, but I think it'll probably be similar to this where we cut away a few times, give us some like interesting dynamic shots and like go like, oh, wow, like these, all these planets are wildly different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm cool staying on Arrakis as well because I like it there. I like it there. It's cozy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll be disappointed if we just stay on Arrakis, but I do just want to see just because Denis Villeneuve is so creative like what does a galaxy look like in his mind with other planets and a chance to design them. So I hope we get to see some of that. can't believe you, Austin. We're talking about a sci-fi film and the idea of staying on a sand-based planet upsets you. I've never heard you say that before. Oh, never. You know how much <laughs> I love tattooing. <laughs> I know, I know. Let's dive a bit more into the chosen one and the dreams and things like that. We yeah. actually didn't spend too much time on this in our first uh, kind of recording of this episode, but the dreams and the and the chosen one stuff could have come off so cheesy, but it, it, for whatever reason, it just really works in this movie. And the visions of like a religious uprising under the flag of House Atreides, like that sort of stuff, stood out to me more this time around. And just how scared Paul is of of that happening, and how angry he gets at his mom for kind of setting this path in motion. So, what did you think of all that stuff on this rewatch? It's fascinating. Like I said, chosen one, that trope is very overplayed. Um, I feel like it's often done fine, like it's done okay, not bad, but it's just, it, there's just so much of it out there that it often just feels like they're kind of doing the safe route, they're doing the basic stuff, the thing that you would expect that trope to do. But here, yeah, like I said, it's just, I think it's so fascinating. Uh, I think they take a lot of the, like, other elements of the movie, and it ends up tying into kind of the Chosen One storyline, which I think is also cool, culminating in that great scene, like you said, whenever they're in the tent and he uses the voice. Uh, on his mom, like, get off of me or whatever. Um, but yeah, kind of that culminating there is so good. And I don't know, I just, the dreams themselves are have always been fascinating to me in this movie. The idea that he is this chosen one, this potential messiah for all these different people, whether it be House Atreides or the Fremen, the Bene Gesserit, whatever, like everybody, like Paul Atreides, like I said earlier, is like the number one in all these lists. But just the idea of these dreams, they do such a perfect job because like whenever we talk about dreams in movies, it's like characters will like have like a weird dream. They'll wake up and they'll be like, how am I supposed to interpret that? And even we like, you know, outside of media, like in real life, we do that, too. But here, or like, they, how do I they, stop that from happening or right. something like that? Yeah. But here they visually show it. And the way they do it is by him having dreams that often look similar to each other. But wildly different things are happening to them. I don't really know how they pulled that off. But like the example I used earlier is like whenever he dreams about Johnny, he um, in one dream, it's like this tease of maybe this love that's brewing. And then another one, it's literally that same thing happening. It's like they're about to have like their first kiss or something. And then just 
snap of a finger and she's stabbed him in the gut. So just the idea of like these dreams that like don't always come to fruition. They also do that with the character Janice, who's teased to be this future friend that will lead him and help him understand the ways of the desert. And that kind of does happen, but it's quite a twist whenever you meet that character in real life and he's immediately ready to kill Paul and then yeah. Paul has to kill him. But in by in by doing that, he kind of does kind of answer that the call that that dream put out there of like, you know, I'm going to teach you the ways of the desert. So the way they do the dreams and that tying into the chosen one stuff, I thought like from a visual standpoint is so amazing. And I, and I guess that's another thing for the sequel. Like, are we going to get a lot more dreams? Do we get less? Because now a lot of them are coming to fruition. I don't know. But either way, I think it's done perfectly in this movie. I think we will get more dreams because there's a line in the trailer where it says like, I can see an infinite number of possibilities, but I don't know what's going to happen. So I think we will be diving more into that. I'm just so curious to see how the religious uprising plays out, because in the visions he sees in in this first movie, that's happening on other planets. So how is word of Paul Atreides being the chosen one, I guess, fighting back against the Harkonnens on Arrakis? How is that going to spread across the galaxy? Yeah, and that's also such like a cool thing for a quote unquote chosen one character to have to deal with is like all these possibilities are presented to him and he's like, it's almost like he has to choose one, but then he also doesn't. He just has to kind of live his life and see what naturally unfolds. But then how does that connect to like a previous dream he had? So like the idea of a chosen one having all these different options and kind of having to navigate that feels like very much the kind of thing that you would want to see somebody with like a messiah or chosen one moniker have to actually deal with and figure out how to navigate it, I guess. It's also interesting, too, to see a chosen one caricature who really doesn't want a following. Like, it seems like he doesn't want any of this, but he's just been kind of thrust into this. And it seems like it's going to be a little bit more different than Star Wars, where it's just like Luke is the person that brings balance to the force. Like, this looks like someone who is literally going to have people who are worshiping him and bowing down to him and things like that and it really seems like he does not care to have any of that happen to him but the Bene Gesserit and all these other organizations have been seeding this for generations and now all these people are kind of bought into who he could potentially be yeah and it's cool that like the chosen one and um like the future of the galaxy basically is like very much political and the idea that like the Bene Gesserit know about this actual chosen one thing and the fact that like there is political ramifications and they're trying to kind of uh maneuver through that uh, is very yeah very different from anything we've seen before and yeah to your point with like star wars it's like that's another thing that i always kind of felt was a little bit of just saying it and not really putting it into practice which i think dune does the opposite of in the best way possible but start you're right star wars is just like luke has to bring balance to the force and it's like at the end of the last of return of the jedi i should say he you know helps i guess not helps but like darth vader you know, who I, I guess actually, yeah, Anakin, I guess, was the chosen one, too. <laughs> like chucking the emperor <laughs> off that that thing. And then I think by the time the credits are like five minutes later, we're just supposed to go, oh, I guess by the bad guy dying, we've brought balance to the force. And it's maybe one of those things where then, you know, like 40 years later, you make sequels that take place after it, and then you realize what happened in between. You're like, oh, OK. So it's like they just kept saying we got to bring balance to the force. But like, what the fuck did that ever mean? <laughs> so I like that Dune is like, you know, we're talking about the future. And we're seeing a character realize that there has to be an end point for whatever this holy war, this religious thing, this political stuff with the emperor. Like there will be an end game to that. Um, and yeah, we'll see what he chooses. I have no idea. I don't even know if I can tell you a theory, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't know what happens in any of the books. I know there's a lot of them, but no clue what's going to happen. Uh, but I'm very curious to see uh, what path he chooses. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I'm curious about, too, is it's a very quick line, but it seems like the people in the Bene Gesserit can decide 
what gender their babies are because there's a line where it's where they say like you were told to have daughters and instead in your like ego you had a son thinking you could create the messiah and then also lady jessica is pregnant in this movie she does she is pregnant with a daughter and so i'm curious to see how that gets brought up in part two as well right like will the daughter be more naturally in tune with um the Benny Gesserit powers or whatever you want to call them. That could be an interesting dynamic between siblings as well. That is a good point. I really, I wish we got more. And again, I think it's done really well. I just like selfishly wish we got more stuff with uh, Lady Jessica and uh, Leto Atreides just because what an interesting dynamic. And it feels like it ends very quickly. I think the only yeah. scene that we get them where it's solo is where he's asking, you know, if she'll protect Paul. And she's like, of course I will. And he's like, I'm not asking you as his mom. I'm asking you as the person in this religious cult kind of like how's that going to play out and then the next they go to bed in that scene and then he dies that night so yeah I, i'm very curious but yeah it, <laughs> no i'm like realizing on the fly so many questions i have it is interesting too because there is a show in the works called doing the prophecy which is about the origins of this prophecy of the messiah and will be heavily focused on the Bene Gesserit. i think it takes place about ten thousand years before dune part one so excited for that. That's coming to Max. I'm glad they're kind of building out this franchise. Um, I also wanted to ask you one more thing about part one, uh, and it is those kinetic barriers for when they're fighting. We hated this in part one. We thought we all thought it looked goofy. Did it make any more sense to you this time how they actually worked? Because uh, for me, it seems like the rules always change. They say like slow things can get through the barriers, but then when Duncan Idaho is fighting, he gets stabbed very quickly. Um, and those like red and blue barriers are flashing. It still looks very wonky to me. How did those kind of play out for you on this rewatch? Yeah, to be honest, it doesn't bother me as much, but I still it's one of those things where I do not get it at all. But I think now that I've seen it three times, I just don't really think about it as a negative anymore. I don't really I just don't think about it because I I accepted whenever I first watched. I'm like, that seems stupid to me, <laughs> but <laughs> it's whatever. And you're right. The rules don't really make any sense. And look, I, I understand. I think this movie is trying to maybe emphasize. I shouldn't even say the movie and probably the, I, the book is what started it. But I, one of the things I love about it um, that comes with some negatives like this is like it's set in like what, 10,000 something. So it's like 8000 years away, far future stuff. And it's like, I don't know how to, how to word it. It's like 8,000 years from now, this actually seems somewhat realistic to me. <laughs> so they found a way to like tell like a far future story that feels possible. But of course, then the issue with that is like, why the fuck do they have these barriers? You're telling me that they couldn't, they couldn't make something that doesn't have this weird caveat of like, hey, this will protect <laughs> from fast things, but slow things, you're fucked. It's like, we don't have a better shield than this. Like, it's stupid. I, and I probably said this on the first, on our first episode way back when, but to me, it always kind of stank of like, look, we can't have this be R because we need to have this, this exactly be a what you said. <laughs> OK, so it feels like, hey, if this is going to be R with all this action, because there's going to be so much blood that we have to do this weird like PG-13 ified thing where we'll give them these suits. But it makes no sense. I mean, you get some dope scenes from it. I still think like Leto actually getting hit by the dart is like really yeah. like tense and like scary. And the bombs dropping on the structures and like slowing down. Ugh. So cool. So cool. But yeah, to your point, I, I still don't get it at all. Uh, I, I do think it's cool that like it's from what I gathered from this watch, it seemed like the Sardaukars were using it as well. But then the Harkonnens weren't. They're just like brute force. They don't use the shields. So I kind of like that element, that, like not everybody uses it uh, or maybe they don't want to. So that's cool. But yeah, I, it's not that I need it to be toned down in the sequel, but I don't know. I, I would like to see less of it. And we might even get that because I. I mean, it doesn't seem like the Fremen use it. So I think we might get some cool action without the weird shields that 
I think, kind of ruined some of like the one-on-one action scenes. But whatever. It's it's not a huge deal to me anymore. Yeah. It'd be one thing if the rules like didn't make sense. I could live with that. And the thing that kind of stands out is just like the hand-to-hand fighting with it looks so wonky with like the flashing of colors. Like it still stands out as just like very clumsy. There are very cool yeah. moments like we touched on, but just like the physical one-on-one fights that would look really cool without it. Uh, those kind of get ruined for me. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember that being a huge, like a huge <laughs> thing. Um, I hope we see more like the floating tech too because I like how the Baron is like, I guess like they're trying to tell us like so big, like can't really actually maneuver. So he just floats by using this thing on his back. I also noticed on this watch that in the scene right after Leto gets it with the dart, whenever Duncan walks out and he's trying to find Paul, he has a moment where he like runs and jumps at someone. And right before he does it, it cuts to a shot on his back. And it seems like he has the same like black thing with like red, like glow, like glowy dots on it that he like touches somehow and it allows him to do like the super jump. So maybe he has like the floating tech too. So I was like, I want to see more of that. I'm, I, I like that little floaty, <laughs> like flying tech. <laughs> yeah, the tech is very cool. I'm, I'm super excited to see more of it in part two. Just like unique stuff that looks crazy, but also looks functional. Uh, they do such a good job with that in this movie. So I know we've already kind of talked about the ending a little bit, but I wanted to kind of frame it around how it, you know, leads into part two and the future of this. Now, I think it's fair to call this a franchise now. I know the last time we talked about it, that was very much up in the air. Uh, but now we have part one, we have part two. I think Denis Villeneuve's like, he, he's already throwing it out there, but they're 100% going to adapt Dune Messiah. So there's, it's going to be Dune part three. And then we're also getting the Benny Gesserit show. So this is a full-fledged franchise now, which is exciting. But yeah, so let's talk about how the ending leads into the future. Because like I said earlier, I want to get your thoughts. The ending this time around didn't really bother me as much. I, I think I probably, again, like in the first time, I, I talked about it being anticlimactic. But I really enjoyed kind of this, like the final fight, quote unquote, in this movie being this very intimate, like scary um, one on one fight between somebody that just is not willing to allow Paul to come into the Fremen world. And then that just like quickly dovetailing into that scene of them walking with them. And, you know, we're going to go live with them. I love the the lines from Paul where Lady Jessica is like, you have to get us off planet. And he's like, no. My father was brought here. I can see my path for the first time, and this is where I need yeah, to be. Yeah, that line it's is like, great. It's a banger. It hits. So yeah, let's talk about the ending. Is there anything like specific you wanted to talk about in regards to a rewatch? Did you have differing thoughts on it? Then let's kind of lead into talking about anything else we want to see in Dune Part 2. And the fact that I think we're getting a Dune Part 3, which we certainly couldn't have said the first time we talked about this. Yeah, I think I landed right where you did. Where I know the first time we watched it and talked about it, we were like, it is kind of lame. It just ends with them walking into the desert. Um, this ending... I. I really think this is where the context of a sequel uh, helped my viewers at this time because now, I, like that ending, hyped me up. I was like, I cannot wait to see where this goes in part two. Also, the fact that the Fremen stood out as more important to me this time around, like g- getting Paul—that was the goal of this movie was getting Paul to the Fremen. And so now that he's there, I'm excited to see what comes from him potentially being their Messiah, uh, joining the revolution against the Harkonnens, um, and then also the kind of broader consequences as Paul starts playing politics with the emperor and things like that. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the fact that like some of the, the quick Stilgar scenes uh, stood out to me on this rewatch really helped the ending as well, because whenever Paul's given that like amazing monologue and he says, my father came to this planet, not for riches, not for political ramifications. He came here um, for the Fremen. Like he came here to kind of build this alliance uh, of people. Um, 
is a great moment. And then whenever it cuts over to Javier Bardem, like his reaction to that is so good because you're right. The earlier scene where he's like talking about like, no, this this is a good kid. I when I met with him, he he's a good kid and his father's a loyal man. So, yeah, where this is going to go, I don't know. But but yeah, so obviously, you know, uh, we both like the ending more. So that's good. We got we're hyped up for Dune Part 2. We've talked about that a lot. So is there anything else you want to talk about with Dune Part 2? And then maybe we can kind of close out with the fact that, like I said, this is a franchise now. Denis Villeneuve's like, hey, if Part 2 does well, then you got me back for Part 3. That'll be my last one. Um, and then who knows, maybe if that's a huge hit, they kind of turn this into a long running franchise. I don't know. I know there's a lot of books. That's all I can tell you about. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Any any other thoughts, Austin, on kind of just all that as a whole or part two stuff? What you got? Yeah. With part two, I, I think now that we are all kind of grounded in this world after having seen part one, I'm excited for we touched on on the first one, how like in our original viewing, I felt like we are starting in the middle of the book. So I'm glad to kind of have that context already. So I, I think part two is going to just flow more naturally. Um, I think the world building stuff doesn't have to happen as like frequently as it did in this movie. So this movie kind of feels like where Denis Villeneuve can kind of really play with this world and put his stamp on this franchise. So I'm excited to see kind of all that stuff play out. And I have seen like early reviews um, from trusted sites like The Hollywood Reporter and The New York Times and things like that, like calling it a cinematic masterpiece. Um, the early reviews from Adam Webb was that it was a flop and that was accurate. So I'm excited to like see like it feels like this is there's a lot of hype building for this. It's also supposed to be a lot more action heavy than the first one is. Um, and the new characters like Florence Pugh, Austin Butler and Christopher Walken apparently like steal the show. So I'm excited to see all of them kind of come into this role. I mean, they already had like an A-list cast and then they were like, hey, here's three more. And yeah. Like, Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't realize that you guys could find more. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very much excited. And I and I love that Denis Villeneuve is excited about this. That He always talked about this being basically like, hey, if I could make it as a director, then one day I want to do Dune. That's the thing I'm building towards. Like, that's the thing I actually want to make. Yeah. But he's like, but I got I got to put in the work. I, you know, I got yeah. to make some hits. He was offered find it. Some success. He was offered it before he did Arrival. And he said, no. I need to spend more time making sci-fi movies. Yeah, and he fucking did, and he nailed those, and he nailed this one. But I love that he's excited about this franchise, and that he's com- he would he's committing. He's like, I'll do three of them, and he's never. I mean, it, yeah, I'm thinking back. He's never done a sequel, so obviously he was. Um, he's very excited about this, and his excitement gets me excited. Now, am I like like super amped for like a Benny Gesserit theme show? Like. Not really. I'm, I'm excited about the idea because they were way more interesting to me on this rewatch. So I, w- I will definitely watch it if that ends up happening. But I think just in general, I'm very excited about the idea of a television show set in the Dune world because, you know, we always talk about, you know, very dense, you know, subject matter. There's lots going on. It's very like, you know, you got to have those subtitles on. You got to be paying attention. And like it might take three viewings for you to kind of catch everything. But the idea of a TV show, I think, would very much suit like a dense world like this. So I'm excited about the future on that side as well. So yeah, can't wait. And I don't know, I guess I'm glad that I didn't watch these, uh, a lot of these Dune part two trailers. And I'm glad that it took me like three years to give it another watch because I guess in a weird way, I kind of forgot that Dune part two was so close. I feel like this is like this rewatch uh, ended up being a nice little treat for me because now I don't have to wait a long time to, you know, continue the story. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pumped. I'm thrilled. Two weeks till we can see it. Um, and then speaking just a little bit more on the future, of course, Dune Part 2 is coming out um, and then hasn't been greenlit yet, of course, but Denis Villeneuve has said he has written Dune Messiah and wants to make it. Um, and then that will actually be his last. And he doesn't believe any more should be made after Dune Messiah. So he thinks only in his mind, the only things in this franchise that are adaptable to film is Dune 1 and the sequel to the book Dune Messiah. 
um after that apparently there's just like so many new characters and like just crazy weird stuff that starts happening that it's believed to just not be possible to put the film and that's fine with me that's fine with me if like messiah has like a nice like button to it that book then i'm that i'm sure we can make that adaptable for the film and it's like not that new characters wouldn't be good but i'm i'm assuming what he's kind of getting at is like you know dune messiah is probably the end not in like a, in a negative way but it's it's that's probably like a good button or the end of paul atreides kind of story that starts here so i think that'll be a perfect little uh trilogy there but but yeah i can't wait i can't wait i can't wait for uh the inevitable dune 4 that warner bros makes cuz they want money yep. and then a new director comes <laughs> in and it's terrible yeah i i could see that quite easily happening <laughs> But in terms of like if there's anybody like having the same worries that we had whenever we were watching Dune Part 1, like, are we going to get Part 2? I think there is no chance you don't get Dune Messiah because, I mean, you have to remember the context. It was like Dune Part 1 came out a day and date on HBO Max as it was in theaters. Uh, It was also very much peak COVID um, and it still turned a profit. I mean, it cost 165 million to make. It made like 450 million, somewhere around there. So it definitely did well enough that they were like, hey. We have the streaming numbers, we have the box office numbers, so let's make the second one. But I would not be surprised if like Dune Part 2 comes out in theaters, very much a different time in relation to COVID. You're not getting the HBO Max stuff kind of keeping people from like contributing to box office numbers. Like this could very easily like do double the box office that the first one did. So I there is no chance <laughs> Dune Messiah doesn't happen. And I think Denis Villeneuve knows that. That's why he's like starting to throw out comments like, hey, I wrote it. So I'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's going to happen. Dune part two is being called 2024's first big blockbuster. It's being called Denis Villeneuve's masterpiece. I mean, like the hype is there and I really hope it lives up to that. Yep. And whenever Craven the Hunter comes out in August, it'll dethrone it. But, you know, yeah, of course, Dune can Dune can enjoy the first half of the year. (laughs) And that'll be the start of the first big franchise for Sony. Can't wait. Gosh, it's an exciting year. All right. Well, there you go. That is our Dune Part 1 revisit and kind of just conversation so we can kind of get amped and prepped for Dune Part 2. So I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Before we close out, though, of course, we have to do some Arnie's Podcast Awards, the part of our show where we take something from the thing we just watched, and it can be a positive, negative, or something in between type of reaction, but we just have to give an award to it. So, awesome what you got today. Yeah, I'm going to give the Hello Goodbye Award uh, to kind of this whole movie, but the thing that really stands out is... uh. Paul Atreides is really wowed by these palm trees that he sees in Arrakis. <laughs> and he's like, oh, wow, I, I didn't know we could grow anything here. And you get this beautiful story of how how much time this guy spends maintaining these trees and all that. And then the next time we <laughs> see these palm trees, they're on fire. I thought you could also kind of reword the award as well for Hello Goodbye. I thought you were going to say, like, Paul walks out, sees these trees, he's wowed by them, and then the guy tells this beautiful story, like you said, and then Paul goes, well, should we get rid of them to save water? (laughs) And the guy's like, were you listening to what I just said? (laughs) Either way, it works. But yeah, good, good. That's a good one. Good point. Um, Mine, not super similar. I guess we could probably find some common ground somewhere in there. When it comes to growth, maybe, maybe you could kind of tie it in there. But um, it didn't stand out to me the first two times I watched it, but it definitely did this time. And I don't know what I would really call this. Like, I mean, I guess I could call it the Hello Goodbye as well in a different way, but I'm just going to call it the the most transformations per movie award. And it goes to Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. Whenever you see him in his first scene of like, what, I don't know, maybe four big scenes, uh, he looks like Jason Momoa. He has his hair back, but he has like the huge beard that he always has as Aquaman. And then throughout the movie, 
he goes through it's like every scene he's in his hair and facial hair are completely different <laughs> i just got a kick out of this time like the next scene it's like it's shaped like the beard goes away and it's like shaved really low and then like by the end of the movie he's completely shaved and i'm like what was the thought process here was this a jason momoa decision <laughs> he was like look to me like this is a great offer i don't get offered things like this but i have to look like me in the first scene and then if I have to shave or cut my hair, I guess I will. But you have to let me look like Aquaman in my first scene. <laughs> I think at the time, too, he was probably still doing Justice League reshoots. So it's probably like, oh my God. I, I'm on a reshoot, Denis. I need my beard. OK, I'm not reshooting this week. I can shave up. <laughs> oh, I'm reshooting again, Denis. I got to have my Shit. beard back. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had to shoot the film completely out of order for Jason Momoa only. Yeah. But I just thought that was so funny. So funny. And, and Jason Momoa, it's good that we saw that in this movie because I don't think there's any chance he ever doesn't look like how he normally does in, in, the, in the future. He's always going to look like Aquaman in anything he's in. It's a good look, though. So this was a, a one good and look. Done. It works for him. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, please share us with your friends if you enjoyed this episode. We really would appreciate it. So we continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast really does help us out. At the Arnie's is our social, and the Arnie's.media is the website. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. And keep in mind, everybody, we do want to hear from you. So please send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us thearniesmedia at gmail.com. What did you think of Dune Part 1? Are you hyped for Dune Part 2? Is Jace Momoa coming back in a flashback or something crazy? Let oh. us know your thoughts and anything you say we'll react to live on our latest episode. I know we're ending. I can't believe we didn't talk about that. But quick, Austin, before we do our official like so longs, what is the over under? I mean, how, what's the percentage chance that we get a quick Jace Momoa flashback? I mean, it's got to be pretty high, right? I don't think Denis Villeneuve no cares, so probably 20. <laughs> About Jason. <laughs> Did you say 20? Yeah. <sighs> okay, I got to go higher than that. I got to go 45. I can't get I can't get to 50, but there's got to be a quick one. There's got to be. And what hair and what hair will he have is the question. <laughs> there is, of course, the classic story that you told on our original uh, time covering Dune Part One, where Jason Momoa was out there to impress, and he said, "Guys, I love what got put out in theaters, but there's a six-hour cut of this movie." Oh and my then god! Denis, I forgot about and that. And then Denis Villeneuve did an interview and said, "I love Jason, but that's not true." <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Okay, I'll go thirty-five. I'll drop ten then because <laughs> they might they might not be friends anymore. But all right, everybody, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time. So long. We got wind power. We got sea power. We need <laughs> desert power. Paul. Desert power. Yeah.